You're listening to KXSF 102.5 FM. I'm Cassin, and this is Moonwax. I have Prairie Prince and our friend Pete in the studio with me today. We're going to be listening to Prairie's music and having a little conversation. KXSF, LP, San Francisco. So we started off that set with uh, Dolly from Nikki Hopkins, and that was with George Harrison and Prairie Prince off the Tin Man Was a Dreamer from Chris Isaac. That was Wicked Game, again with Prairie Prince. He's in all of these songs. Have You Seen the Stars Tonight, Across the Sea of Suns from Jefferson Starship, Sleeping on the Way, Brewer and Shipley off of Rural Space, Wild Dogs from Tommy Boleyn off of Teaser, and that last one was White Punks on Dope from The Two. So uh, today in the studio, today as Herb Kane put it, the one, the only Prairie Prince. Prairie is most well known for his work with the Tubes, with, with him he did 15 albums and world tours. But Prairie has played with everyone, from David Byrne, Chris Isaac, George Harrison, Tom Waits, Dick Dale, Todd Rundgren, Ecstasy, and the list just goes on and on. On top of that, he's an accomplished artist with murals all over the world. And also we have our friend Pete here, who's going to be asking a few questions. Thanks for being on today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Absolutely. So this is kind of weird. <clears throat> I was at a friend's house the other night, listening to the rain hitting his deck and table and kind of listening to the rhythm of it. And it just made me think about how music is the language of the universe. And you, I had heard, started drumming before you could even walk. Do you feel like music, but specifically drumming, is inherent for some people? Like, were you born to do it, to be a drummer? Um, I believe so, yes. And uh, I did have some help from my parents and my grandparents who were all... Uh, musically inclined. My father was a great dancer, and um, <clears throat> my mom was a great uh, music lover, and so were my grandparents on both sides. So yeah, I think it uh, it's inherent, but it's also just what's available around you. And you were talking about the raindrops. Well, m- my first memory of enjoying rhythms, uh, natural rhythms, were like windshield wipers or washing machines or things like that that I could play along with or dance to and beat pots and stuff like that before I had real drums. And for multi-talented creatives, oftentimes they're forced to compromise one form of expression for another. Yet you've managed to live this life that merges your creative forces, and that to me seems almost seamless. You lent your music to Allen Ginsberg's recordings and appeared in Andy Warhol's magazine. So there's poetry, music, art, and I'm wondering, do you feel like these forms of expression use the same parts of your brain? Does the inspiration come from the same place? Wow, that's a deep question. I mean, it comes from... Sure, everything that you're <clears throat> influenced by, um, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose, <clears throat> just again, it was my parents kind of bringing me up with art and music both, and exposing me a lot to a lot of, um, of music and art through museums and through concerts and symphony um, shows, and I also had two older sisters that were um, into the very early parts of rock and roll. So I would hear the rock and roll music in, in our house all the time back in the mid, mid, early to mid 50s when I was six, seven years old. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, so there's so many influences that I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> you did well. It's deep. <laughs> so you have these epic murals around the world. You have this one that I love that was on the exterior of the A&M Records building in Hollywood called uh. Flying Records. And then Crashing Waves on the Cliff House and just so many more. And your vision is clear and it's cool. And you've done album covers and set designs for the likes of Michael Jackson, Bonnie Raitt, Super Bowl, the Olympics. You have your drum kits and motorcycles. I mean, you're a creative force, man. And I'm curious about your process or your medium, education, things mm. like that. Okay. Well, you've done your research. Awesome. <laughs> uh, you really have covered all the things that it was going to take me at least three more sessions here on the radio to explain even a little part of that. But <laughs> um, I was, again, you know, like just really interested in art and music both from the get-go. And I couldn't decide what I wanted to do when I graduated high school, so I decided I really want to go to art school. And um, my favorite city is San Francisco. And I was, this was in Phoenix. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I had relatives that lived here in San Francisco, so I'd spent a lot of time here over my youth, um, just going through, you know, for vacations and stuff. So I, I fell in love with San Francisco early on. And I looked into going to the Art Institute, which is one of the first art schools in the country. And just a beautiful building. And, you know, I had some great teachers and a lot of other uh, artists and musicians that I looked up to went there um, before I did. Anyway, I ended up going there for four years and got my bachelor's degree in painting. And um, at the same time, though, I was with the members of my band at that time they were called the red white and blues band and then they turned into the beans and then that um transformed into the tubes and one of our first tube shows was at the art institute in i think 1971 and i graduated there in 72 so we were doing art and music and we were painting our bodies and um, making crazy costumes and doing theatrical productions because of the art school. We, um, Michael Cotton was my <clears throat> one of my mentors and one of my early partners in, in the art business. We started a company called Aramid, and we were um, <clears throat> we were able to paint murals around San Francisco through the help of some other friends of ours that like worked at Macy's and uh, some other people that worked for um, art companies and they would hire us to do murals and stuff. So the, one, of the, one of the early ones was uh, the Cliff House. We did that in 1973. Um, <clears throat> and then the A&M Records building came up when um, the A&R guy came up to listen to the two, to the band. He was looking for you know people to sign to A&M Records, and he saw our artwork, and he said, "You guys should come down and do a mural at the A&M Records building. I can set that up." So we, before we even got signed as a as the Tubes, we got a job to paint the records all over the building. It took us a month and a half every day up on scaffolding and stuff to paint that thing, and. And that was in 1974, right before we got signed. So we um, we got signed right after that. And most of the most of the people that worked at Anim Records thought that the Tubes was just an art an art uh, an art company. They didn't know they were musicians. <laughs> so we put on one of the labels on the high up on the on the mural. It says "Blame it on the Tubes." <laughs> I remember that. And then they painted it out 25 years later, when Sony 
bought it from A&M, from, from Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. I saw that there was a documentary yeah. from NPR that was made about that. Yeah. Uh, and the Cliff House got painted over, and you know, just all these great things. We did murals in Macy's, we did murals in I Magnons, all those things got torn down and ripped out. Murals in, you know, record stores and all, all things that just have gone their way. But somewhere I have a lot of photographs of these, pa <laughs> these paintings and the murals we've done around San Francisco. Um, I also wanted to know if you did the Tubes logo. Did well, yes, that? we did. Um, the Tubes logo came about. We were trying to come up with something wacky and wonderful. And there was a toothpaste called Close-Up Toothpaste at the time. Um, it was clear gel-style toothpaste, and it was bright red. And we thought, oh, that might be cool because Tubes comes out of a tube. And we started, we got like a case of Close-Up Toothpaste, and Michael Cotton and I just got a, a whole bunch of paper and just started writing uh, different styles of, of the word, the, the tubes, until we found one we liked. And it was probably maybe two cases of close-up toothpaste before <laughs> we got the one we liked. And then we photographed the, the, the people at A&M, the art department there, had a really good photographer. They photographed that. And then we took the photograph of that and put it inside an album and had um, our singer, Ree Stiles, who was my girlfriend at the time, Take take her hand and rip that that photograph of that of, of with the album in it. It was kind of a complicated process to get the final um, artwork for that first album. So that was the it was just called self titled the tubes that had white punks on dope on it. Your art was a big part of these stage shows the tubes did. I've seen some outstanding videos from Bimbos back in the seventies and a bit from Xanadu not the Mitchell Brothers film. And I'm wondering, can you give us a visual of what the shows were like in the early days? Our shows? Yeah. Yeah, well, they were kind of like Busby Berkeley gone berserk. <laughs> um, we were into Mondo Bondage kind of stuff, being in San Francisco and seeing all the, like the early shows of the Coquettes, who were very glamorous men, you know, dressed up like women and put on these wild shows of, of which Sylvester, if you remember him, the disco, um, <clears throat> the, the disco guy, Sylvester, he was one of the early cockettes. <clears throat> anyway, um, we had, um, yeah, we just, we got in so inspired by so much of the theater that was going on in San Francisco and, and we would just take it out to take it to the limit, really. Then we discovered a friend of ours, <clears throat> well, we met this guy, and he a, was a choreographer, and he originally was the, uh, played in uh, the, the Roadshow of Hair, and Kenny Ortega. And he was a big Busby Berkeley fan and theatrical fan and this incredible dancer. And so we started coming up with ideas for productions for each one of our songs. If we didn't have a song, then we'd get something like a Tom Jones song, like It's Not Unusual, and then Surround surround Fee Waybill who was singing the lead part um, with the dancing girls and stuff and so it was just it was just endless you know it, it was so much fun to come up with all these concepts and make a big show and Bill Graham from Winterland and uh, Fillmore and all that he loved the tubes and he was really into the theatrics that we could put on so we played at some of his biggest venues Winterland and, and uh, the Carousel Ballroom and places like that from 70, 72 to 75, well, and past that, but yeah. 
And then those shows, they were pretty controversial. I think I read that you were chased out of Mexico and also forced off stage by police with machine guns in Italy, uh, that you were banned <laughs> from several towns, that you scared Cher out of a show. I mean, what stands out in your memory of the most wild of those times? Um, I remember Stiv Baders from the, from the Dead Boys uh, was a big fan of the tubes, as was Devo. And we played in Cleveland one time, and yeah, we had this this number called the Revolutionary Revolutionaries of Rock, and then it became the Terrorists of Rock. And we dress in fatigues, uh, our dancers and our choreographer, and Fee was the character. His character was originally it was Fidel, like Fidel Castro, okay. but it was Fidel, and he was you know had the fake beard and the beret and the army fatigues on. Pretty good-looking fake gun, you know, rifles and stuff. And so did all the dancers. And so one of the ideas was to take uh, hostages out of the audience at gunpoint and put them in cages on stage when we, oh we built the cages, the jails, like on stage, and make them, you know, the whole show. So oh even after the, the number was done, they'd still be in the cages, <laughs> tortured, oh tortured by the loud music. <laughs> And I remember Stiv Bader's um, said, I don't want to go up there, but, and he came with his parents. Do you know who I'm talking about, Stiv Bader's? He was uh, the Stib. Dead Boys. Stiv, S-T-I-V. He was the, they were a band from uh, Cleveland. Anyway, punk rock. The Dead Boys. Punk rock, punk. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Dead Boys. Anyway, he brought his parents to the Tube show because he was such a fan. He said, and my parents like the Tubes, too. <laughs> so we said, well, we're going to put your parents in jail. So oh, they were in jail the whole time, <laughs> and he thought that was the funniest thing on earth. He's later died, got hit by a car in oh. Paris. Parents are still alive, though. No, They're still in jail. No. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of... Uh, I mean, there's, you know, I could go on and on about the most exciting or the craziest things that happened. And one time, we were playing in Paris, and we're doing the, it was called Johnny Bugger and the Dirt Boxes. And it was a kind of a piss take on the Sex Pistols. And we were doing a song called I Saw Her Standing There. But he, our singer, Fee, had a actual chainsaw. Saw, get it, saw her. Oh, my God. And so he would be running, he'd be running around the stage with a chainsaw while we were playing this super hyped up version of the Beatles song, uh, I Saw Her Standing There. It's on our live album, which is called What Do You Want From Live? Anyway, um, if he's rant, you know, ranting around stage, jumping around, he's got uh, clothespins and barbed wire all around his body, and he looks over, and all of a sudden, Donovan is walking on stage in a long white robe, oh my and it's like someone has calling him out of out of the mist, mystical <laughs> haze of his mind. And luckily, our roadies saw him first, and they grabbed him before Fee took his head off with a chainsaw. Oh, man. Later, we talked to him, and he goes, I don't know why, I just thought maybe I could come on stage and sing with you guys. <laughs> nope. And we were like, no, you almost got your leg cut off. <laughs> and Fee was like, yeah, what was that guy doing on our stage anyway? So, I was a big Donovan fan. So I love I Donovan. I still am, yeah. So I'm at the Hollywood Bowl in 68. I love him. So a lot of what you were doing in that time was satire, right? It was satire. Yeah, we were just you know, the comedy comedy group. But we, we had underlying serious intentions, you know, for lots of things like rape and 
drugs and everything yeah. that, that we were taking out of society um, and trying to make, take the piss out of it a little bit, but also make people aware that, you know, there's good and bad to everything. I think that undercurrent is definitely obvious. Pete was just talking about it right before we started when he was asking about what white punks on dope is about. Yeah, what what were the what were the origins of the the lyrics? I always kind of read it as uh, rich uh, kids from Pacific Heights. That's what uh, they were. In fact, Bill Spooner, who wrote uh, and Michael um, Michael Evans, wrote the lyrics to that <clears throat> that song. Um, kind of based on um, Bill's girlfriend at the time who was a young woman from a rich family but they were really into doing drugs and you know just uh, I mean it was kind of a sad situation it seemed like to us that they had all they, they had all they needed or want, could want but they were depressed about their situation so they would turn to drugs and, and uh, which is often not that we case. tried to stop them you know, we were just trying to make a point that you guys should pay attention. People should pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an anti-drug taking, song. It's an anti-drug song. That's what exactly what it was. And then the the character that we built around it was a looted out, you know, drunk English style rock star named, and we called him Quaalude, which was <laughs> after the drug, the Qualude. But uh, and we spelled it differently. We spelled it. Uh, L E W D rather than L U D E. I, I remember so lewd, so lewd and rude he was. Yeah. I remember growing up around here. It seemed like the uh, the rough and tumble biker types kind of took the image for themselves with the uh, the the Ben Davis pants, the Dickies jacket, steel toe boots, buck knife, uh, white beater T-shirt, white pod. It seemed kind of ubiquitous in San Francisco at that time with the. Yeah, but was that about the tube song, or was that just made their own their their own thing? That's what we never really realized. Was it like was it white power or death? Was it some Nazi youth or what? <laughs> we don't know. All I know is that when I met Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys, he said, "Yeah, we were all white punks on dope. We used to spray WPOD all over the Sunset District, which is where we live now. Right. I guess that's where he was. He grew up. So, so there you have it." But he was, you know, and then he turned into Dead Kennedys, you know, <laughs> or a pretty radical band. Yeah. Super rad. There's another album you have, uh, Remote Control. I mm -hmm. kind of wanted to play a song from that because I feel like it's in the vein of what we're talking about. Okay. Do you mind if we take a musical break? And... Let's take a break. All right. Uh, turn the TV off. No, turn the TV on with okay. your remote control. <laughs> yes, that's what we're going to do. Okay. And you had mentioned it before. Well, first of all, that was Turn Me On from the Tubes off Remote Control. Um, you had mentioned it before that the before the Tubes, there was the Red, White, and Blues band. And the Tubes was a merging of two groups. Were you more of the art rock part of that union? I wasn't sure. Um, but I think both, both bands. Well, actually, it was the Red, White, and Blues band and a band called the Beans. And the Beans were... Um, and we were both sort of the the kind of top bands in 1968 in Phoenix. We were sort of, the, we, we got the best jobs and we, we would do some shows together, but mostly um, we kind of, each beach band had their own fans, fan base. But we, um, but we were always into the idea of starting something more theatrical. You know, I did all the artwork for my band, which was the Red, White, and Blues band, the drum heads and posters and things like that. 
And then the other band, The Beans, some of my friends, you know, would do their posters as well. And yeah, so we were just always, always really interested in creating the, the artwork and the music as a collaboration with, you know, and one, one big giant ball of wax. And you came here from Arizona. Pete brings up this house a lot to me that was on Noriega that you lived in from 63 to 76. And mm -hmm. I wanted to know if you could tell us about life in that Noriega house. Okay, well, it definitely wasn't that long. It was, uh, we, I moved out of there in 19, uh, what was it, 70, 71, maybe. We moved in there in 69. It was an old beach house, one of those old beach houses. And... The six of us moved in there first, um, the Red, White, and Blues Band, with our manager and our light show guy, who was Michael Cotton. And we were a trio, so we had, yeah, I think we had five of, five of us in there. Anyway, took over this old house, rehearsed in the basement, in the garage, and we continued to play around. A lot of people would come in the neighborhood and listen you know, to us playing their heads against the garage door and then we broke up our bass player left and we kind of didn't know what to do we had fee Waybill was our our roadie and our cook at the time we had the manager we had the trio and then we lost our bass player and the beans were kind of burnt out in phoenix so they moved up to san francisco the next year and the beans were a drummer named bob mcintosh vince welnick Rick Anderson and Bill Spooner, which were wow. ended up in the in in the original in the original lineup of the Tubes. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, Bob McIntosh, the other drummer, first drummer of of, the, of that band, um, passed away of cancer. He had uh, leukemia when he was really really young, like 21. So he died. So at one point we were a two two drummer band, and then all of a sudden we were just had the one drummer and me <laughs> and uh we became the tubes and i can't remember the rest of the question what was it i was asking i got about lost that. in history there that's okay it's super interesting i was uh, asking about times in those house because pete had alluded to yeah the, the cala cala supermarket across the street oh, yeah. and dean's deli across the street we were all love in love with dean's daughter <laughs> i remember that and uh, yeah and so we 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 rehearsed there, and um, all of our friends that had heard how cool it was in San Francisco started like a, a major exodus out of Arizona up to San Francisco, and they would always stop at our house for a few weeks first to kind of acclimate and get their bearings before they went out and looked for their own apartments and stuff. So our whole that whole house was was called the. Noriega Hilton, we called it, because everybody was staying mostly up in the attic, which was like a barracks <laughs> building up there with fee waybills, <laughs> barracks with all the strays from Phoenix coming up here. And a lot of them ended up staying and getting jobs and starting other bands and stuff like that. Why did you choose San Francisco? And I also, it's a two-part question, sorry. But well, I answered that the first you time, did. remember? Yeah. yeah, you did go into that. I, yeah. I kind of, I was going to ask you to kind of say how it was in those early days, but how, how it feels different now. Oh, different? Yeah. Well, since we, we moved to San Francisco in 1969, um, it was a little bit 
post Summer of Love. You know, it was already starting to get closer into the disco hell. <laughs> but there was a, some uh, there was a zone in there where it was just kind of um, experimental stuff going on from the the San Francisco sound being the you know the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, and Quicksilver Messenger Service, of which we were all fans of, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to move to San Francisco because there was such a wide variety of great music coming out of San Francisco. And we thought, I mean, Phoenix is good, but it was more really more known for its kind of country and western stuff, and um, <clears throat> we kind of just wanted to get up here and start experimenting with the music that we grew up you know went to high school with him and started loving like the Grateful Dead and and, and Frank Zappa and all yeah. these things and uh, everybody was playing at the Fillmore and Winterland and the Avalon Ballroom and all this stuff we thought we can make it here if we can make it here we can make it anywhere so we came up here and that's how we based our our love of San Francisco but besides that was the Art Institute connection that I right. they all just followed me up here because I thought well I'm going to San Francisco because <laughs> I'm going to start my college degree here. And uh, just a little interjection. This was uh, 1969, fall of 69, and I, we were all registered for the draft because the Vietnam War was raging. We were all registered in Phoenix, Arizona, but oh we gosh. moved up here because I had a student deferment, it was called. Okay. And um, for some reason, the government took my student deferment away saying art school is not real college and so I had to go back to Phoenix and I was protested the war at the time and got out of the draft oh my gosh and we wrote a song about about that it was called Empty Shoes about a guy who got his legs blown off and didn't have any more shoes anywhere yeah. to put on a pair of shoes yeah that was uh, one uncle. of our little war protest songs back in the 60s Bill Spooner wrote that one. I think, um, I think Pete, you said you had some questions. I wanted to tell oh. everyone that Pete and Prairie are actually in a band together. They're called the Ocean Beach or the OB Bronzers. <laughs> so this is Pete. Yeah, yeah well, formerly uh, Poyo and Fermo. Uh, we met Prairie 20-something years ago. I think we had a barbecue. 2000 it was. Yeah. We had a barbecue and you came by, saw, saw us play, and then, then that night there was a fire in the house and you came back by and you saw our singer who was the owner of the house, dragging all the burnt remains out of the garage. And Kelso. Helped. Kelso Martinez, a real, a real white pod. Uh, yeah, definitely he, a white pod. He, uh, you hit it off with him, yeah. and Prairie invited us down to his studio, and we were just overjoyed you already to had have... A drummer. You already had a drummer. But... We had a drummer, but he was on the out. He couldn't handle the Kelso craziness. And, and I liked it because just coming from the craziness of the <laughs> tubes and everything else already. You, you embraced it. Yeah. I was immune to the craziness. But growing up in the Bay Area and being a Tubes fanboy, um, it was a it was a real thrill to be invited in by this guy and just loved his drumming and and getting to know him as a person. What a great person he is. But on that on that note, um, he's worked with a lot of local musicians. Uh, you know, from the Sunset, the Joe Moranti and Joe DeLeo and the Merman and. Us and uh, Rotten Core, Blue Lou's band, and uh, yeah. Blue Lou. Hey Blue Lou. <laughs> <laughs> hey Blue Lou. Uh, it just can't speak highly enough of Prairie. He's a real stand-up guy, but um, also wicked sense of humor and one great drummer. 
Thank you, Pete. Yeah, <laughs> <Wow>. yeah. <laughs> can you write that down and so I can repeat that to my family? And All Mary, right. why are you friends with Pete? <laughs> why do you love Pete so much? I love Pete because he's a great musician. He's a great carpenter. He's going to go back and fix my bathroom floor in about an hour. Yep. That's nice. <laughs> but no, he's uh, he's just one of my dearest friends, and um, we've been uh, we've been really tight for twenty like over twenty years, and. And his lovely wife Mika, and we have a yeah. great time together. Um, we haven't we haven't toured enough, really. We did one short tour in a limo. One yes, time. up we to Oregon. Open for the Jefferson Starship. Oh, that'd be fun. Up in Clacky Mass, Oregon, and the road trip to that was just you know like off the off the hook. We stopped and camped and stuff, and got really screwed up dirty got, <laughs> dirty got dirty a few times we played in point arena point well arena. that's a very odd town to play music in yeah, yeah. uh also we played in uh someone's backyard in eureka, eureka and right. also at a restaurant in eureka yeah yeah and then the big gig We're swinging at, from the rafters on yeah. that one, yeah. oh my gosh and the big gig at the clackamas fairgrounds which was a veterans um benefit oh yeah and that um that was the first time I ever got to play on a big stage that pushed air, and it was a real thrill to hit a bass note and feel it reverberate it through great. through the countryside. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Prairie. Well, you you <laughs> you play bass, and and Pete now is aspiring guitar player, so we we're not sure yet if he's going to give up the bass or no, he's no, take over no, I can't. Jimmy Page's spot. I'm just I'm just an angry bass player. Yeah, <laughs> but he's a he's a good he's a good study. <laughs> And you've opened up, or you've headlined with Zappa and opened for Bowie. And um, I, I read this uh, As story. The tubes. As, As the, the tubes. tubes. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I read the story, the Zeppelin story, the one from Bill Graham. Yeah. Do you remember that one? Do you want to share about that one? Well, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a managerial thing. Um, we had tubes that just kind of started getting a little bit of a name around the town. 72, we were playing some of the local, little local venues and stuff. And we we got contacted by this little manager group of which one of them was a guy named Herbie Herbert. And he had just come from being, um, working with uh, Santana. And he hired, we hired him, to, him and his partners to be our, our managers for a little while. He got us a few gigs. And then all of a sudden he got us the gig uh, to open for Led Zeppelin at Kezar Stadium. And I think it was... June of 1973 and we played that show but we went on at 10 in the morning and I think there was a, a three or four other bands that were supposed to play on that on that bill before Zeppelin uh, one of them was uh, oh god what's his name uh, what was his name really? what what was the question? The the uh, the guy who else played on that bill besides Zeppelin and the two? And I think it was just you guys. No, it was like it, the guy had a drummer named Frosty. Well, I was barely out of diapers, so I didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so we we get on it at ten in the morning, and we look at the audience out front, and they are, have been standing in line waiting for Led Zeppelin to get the front seats at the. Kizar, you know, just on the on the ground, because the Kizar Stadium is just like a, a football stadium, sort of like a high school football stadium. 
So the bleachers are way kind of far away from everything. So anyway, all the people in the front were pretty surly at 10 in the morning. They hadn't had enough coffee or they had too much coffee or they'd been in line. So we came out and we were doing our one of our first real big, we as we thought, theatrical show in front of a big crowd. We had oversized cowboy hats. We did a con- you know the, the country and western bit with Fee Waybo plays the the cowboy who gets shot and we did that song El Paso, lots of blood bags and stuff oh like gosh. that messed the stage up. Um, <clears throat> and um, but we started the show with our rock star character Quaalude, and he brought out a bag of flour and say it told the audience it was cocaine. Oh and he brought out another bag of mints saying it was quaaludes. And he just showered the f- whole front row with these fake drugs. And they quickly realized that they were not real and made them even more angry. So they just started throwing stuff at us for the whole rest of the set. And we were up there for an hour, you know, just getting bombarded by fruit Oh no! I had beer <laughs> bottles, all kinds of stuff. But we we made it through the show, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's much uh, documentation of that show, uh, at least our set. Which I wish I'd love to see that someday. So if anybody out there in Radioland has any like a oh, Super Eight movie of that performance or pictures or anything, I please would love to con- get contacted about that. Yeah, please let us know. I'd like to see that too. Yeah, so that was uh, yeah, that was the Led Zeppelin trip. And then you were an original member of Journey. You've toured with the New Cars, Jefferson Starship, Todd Rundgren, and you're still touring. Um, I saw with the Gil- Gilmore Project in uh, May, and then going out with the Tubes during the summer out in the UK. Um, how is it for you splitting your time between so many big projects? How am I spending my time? How is it for you splitting your time? Oh, splitting. Oh. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's, a, it's kind of a nightmare of scheduling, really. Um, these days, it's not as oh, difficult as it used to be. Uh, you know, at one time we were on full, you know, long tours for each one of these bands that I was in. Like Todd Runger would go out for six months, six weeks. Uh, Jefferson Starship would go out off and on for months at a time. The tubes would go on, so I would have to get subs for either one of one of the three or four bands that's not happening so much anymore because nobody really is touring with anything with any great length um todd does go out every now and then and i just have to make sure i know when that is so i can schedule myself it's just about scheduling is all it is really love to play with all of those bands but i just can't do it all at once (laughs) yeah do you want to talk about the gilmore project at all sure Gilmore Project was brought to us by um, a guy named Michael Gaiman, who was our manager um, and booking agent for the Jefferson Starship, and pulled me into that band, that uh, formation of the Starship. There had been many in 1992, and it was Paul Kantner, Jack Cassidy, and Marty Ballon from the original Jefferson Airplane, and then uh, a couple of other members. Darby Gould was the singer. She, did the great slick stuff and Tim Gorman was our keyboard player um, so this is the uh, the Starship version that I played with for 20 years but before that I forgot the question again I got lost <laughs> just in the about Starship. the Gilmore project the Gilmore so <laughs> this guy Michael Gaiman 
um, has done these different kind of sort of he doesn't call them tribute bands, but he did he did a band back in the early 2000s called Blue Floyd, and it was um, maybe a, a member from uh, a member from Black Crows, Mark Ford, and a couple other guys, and they would do Pink Floyd songs, but they would take them out like jam band style. And blues, blues them up or jazz them up or whatever. Make, so make them their own sort of, but still playing the music of Pink Floyd. So his his newest idea was to take um, David Gilmour's pen songs, mostly not the Roger Waters things, kind of put a little bit of a separation in it. I think he knew uh, Gilmour's manager and got the go ahead to be able to do this with with. Um, David Gilmore's consent, and we hired <clears throat> he hired a guitar player named Jeff Pivar from Crosby, Sills and Nash. He also has played with lots of people, uh, Ray Charles and stuff. Great guitar player and singer, and he's the band leader. And then he asked Chasm Sultan from Utopia to be the bass player. Asked me to be the drummer. Um, the keyboard player is Scott Guberman, who is a, a local man that lives in Fairfax and plays has played with a lot of the the dead company people, Phil Esch and et cetera. He's a great guy. And then the the last member is Mark Karen who plays he played for many years with uh, Bob Weir and his version of Rat Dog and uh, he has his own band called Puddle Duck and Mark Karen. Great guy, great singer. So that's the Gilmore project and we um, have been playing for about a year now. We've done a, a few tours. Finished one, and we're getting ready to go on a cruise next week. We're going to go on the '70s Love and Romance cruise as the Gilmore Project, and be the music of Pink Floyd after midnight. We're doing the whole Dark Side of the Moon, start to finish, because it's his 50th anniversary of that record. Oh yeah, 1973. It, that record came out. Your body of work is enormous. I've loved diving into it. Those recordings with Nikki Hopkins and George Harrison from Apple Studios, I love them. Thank and I, I was wondering what it was like recording at Apple Studios. Oh, well, that was a, a scary time. I was, <clears throat> And I had just done my first Journey shows, so I had to leave the band Journey. And they wanted me to be their drummer, and I was said, well, I'm the Tubes drummer. I, I don't want to leave the Tubes. And I'm Nicky Hopkins, a drummer, and I'm going to England right now. So I went to England. Nicky bought me a set of drums. We went to Apple Studios. I lived with him um, for probably three months, and we recorded an album. And he had asked. <clears throat> he got a record deal. He was kind of the session guy for <clears throat> the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, um, the, the Kinks, the Who, just about everybody that you ever heard from that era, he was the keyboard player. Either just recorded, he did a lot of live gigs with him, but mostly he was the session man. And when he got time to do his solo album, he reached out to all these other people to ask them if they could come and collaborate with him. So I, we got George Harrison, we got Ray Cooper on percussion, we got Claus Vorman on bass, um, Mick Taylor on guitar from his his work with the Rolling Stones, um, with Nicky. And <clears throat> and um, Mick Jagger was kind of assigned to be the producer. So I show up at Apple Studios. Mick Jagger's in the, in the control room with Richard Perry as the engineer. And 
I'm trying to set up this set of drums that Nikki had bought me. I couldn't set it. I was so nervous. And Mick Jagger was saying, is the drummer ready yet? Is the drummer ready to get started? We've been here waiting for him for a long time. And Nikki said, um, so we started, finally got started. And, you know, we were playing. And then and the Nick, I remember Mick Jagger said, is there anything else the drummer can do? Maybe play maracas or something. And I was just shattered. And so... <laughs> So uh <clears throat> Nikki said, Mick, you know, let's let us just get going on this thing. You could come back another time. So he never came back. Wow. So it ended up just was being produced by Nikki, most of it. And probably all for the better. And it was probably it's all for so the better. Beautiful. But uh, you know, I would have been nice to have Mick Jagger on my side, not not telling me I need to go play flute or something. <laughs> <laughs> Maracas. Uh, later on, though, I did audition for him, uh, for his solo band, and we had a good time, and he talked about that. He talked about that. And he came and saw the Tubes um, a couple years later when we played at a place called The Boarding House in San Francisco. Yeah. And then I read that uh, Dick Dale was a huge inspiration for you. I mean, playing with him must have been amazing. Yeah. Who else has inspired you? Who else besides Dick Dale? Yeah. For surf music, The Avengers, <laughs> um, Safaris, Wipeout. I mean, you know, like I said, my sisters were brought me into the world listening to a lot of early rock and roll. So, I mean, I loved Elvis more than anything. And I loved, um, you know, they were really into doo-wop music. All that kind of stuff was very inspirational to me. They played me a lot of... <clears throat> stuff that was like uh, voodoo voodoo music um, what do you call it like uh, uh, Martin Denny mm -hmm. loved all that kind of stuff you know eclectic eclectic stuff and I'm making a record right now that's based on my first solo album which is based on records that my sisters turned me on to by a guy named Ken Nordine who was a DJ in Chicago and he oh. did came out with these spoken word records that were accompanied by music. Cool. But um, they were called Word Jazz, uh, Ken Nordine. And he did an album called Colors back in 60, I think it was 67, something like that, describing colors with music and poetry. And so my sister, who turned me on to that in the first place, Leslie, she said, you should do a, an updated version of this, this idea. You know, so that's what I've been working on for the, like the last ten years. That sounds awesome. My Prairie Prince Colors and Passions record, and it's going to be coming out in the near future. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to <laughs> hear Color that. Color me wild. Okay. How can we find that album? How can we find it? When it's done, that is. Oh, I, well, you know, this is the things that we're the young whippersnappers of today said. Just put it out as a. A single, you know, you just download the single and that'll be it. Maybe a video with it. Um, but I really would like to do a nice double vinyl set with a lot of artwork included, posters and prints and your calendars. Friend, your friend CVS is helping you with that project. Right? That's right. Chris Von Snyder has been my, my right-hand man on the entire project from the get-go engineering and uh, helping me produce it and we are working out of his studio I'll give it a little plug it's called the tape vault and it it's uh it's in the the inner 
sanctum part of Hyde Street Studios in the Tenderloin. So that's where we're, we're working. And um, great, great musician he is as well. Great guitar player, songwriter. And then uh, Chris von Snyder. Chris von Snyder. And then um, another Chris, Chris Isaac with Wicked Game. I mean, that's one of my favorite songs. And I'm wondering out of all of the songs you've cut, which one are you the happiest with? Which song of, of Chris Isaac's? Of all of the songs in the whole catalog, what comes uh, to mind? Oh, wow, that's a really hard question. I no, thought it might be. Maybe, <laughs> I, maybe I'll tell you one on my first episode, and that's this one. And then there's going to be ten more episodes, right? <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep doing okay, this. This is part one. <laughs> so favorite song of part one would be The Jezebel Spirit mm. by... Brian Eno and David Byrne. Well, we should their, play that. Off their album called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And I got to play a trash can set made out of the garbage cans from the studio, gaffer taped together, and I played them. It's such a cool song. I feel, oh, so we're running out of time, so maybe we should do this again because I have more questions. No, for we're you. doing it. This is uh, one uh, episode part one. Episode part one. Yes. So I was going to play some tubes, but um, we could play that Jezebel Spirit right now. Do you want to hear like that? that? I would like that. Okay, so let's play that. Prairie, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. Pete, and, uh, thank this is, you. Like I said, thank you, Cassin. This has been and fun. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Prairie. <laughs> okay, we're thank gonna... you, Sunset District. Yes. Yeah, Ocean Beach. Yeah. All right, so this is Jezebel Spirit, Brian Eno, and David Byrne with Prairie Prince. So that was Brian Eno, David Byrne, Prairie Prince, and that's from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And Prairie just told me that's got an actual exorcism on it, which is pretty wild to hear. Support for KXSF comes from Open Mind Music, a haven for record lovers since 1994. Henry at Open Mind believes music soothes the soul, inspires change, and makes us move. Find a wide variety from ABBA to Zappa, funk to punk, bebop to hip-hop, including new and used LPs, vintage turntables, local art, and your chance to meet Roxy the Doxy. Come find your groove in record time at Open Mind Music, 5521 College Ave, near Rockridge Barton, Oakland. Support for KXSF comes from Rainbow Grocery, a warehouse co-op market with organic vegetarian grocery items, bulk goods, and supplements. Visit Rainbow Grocery at 1745 Folsom Street in San Francisco or on the web at www.rainbow.coop. And the Community Music Center is a San Francisco vital hub for music education and performance anchored in the city's Mission District and the Outer Richmond. Founded in 1921, CMC is a nonprofit organization providing high-quality music instruction to anyone, regardless of financial means. That's 100 years loving music and inspiring students to reach their full potential. For information on classes, summer camps, or how you can help CMC enrich scholarships for in-need students, go to sfcmc.org. Thank you again. This has been Moonwax Radio. I'm here every Thursday from 1230 to 2 p.m. This is KXSF 102.5 FM. That was Prairie Prince and Pete, and we're going to end the show with some Dick Dale, Unknown Territory. Thank you again.